We perhaps can do so by using three phrases. He's coming. He's here. But can we see him? Right at the heart of the passage that we've been looking at was this confrontation between John the Baptist's and these folks from Jerusalem, from the religious authorities, who have been sent to investigate what John is doing, baptizing down by the River Jordan. Is this part of something great and wonderful that God is doing in the world? Perhaps is this the fulfillment of many of those prophecies of the Old Testament, that one day God is going to restore his people, that were they seen exile in uh, slavery and bondage in Egypt, exile in Babylon, and periods of, of great injustice and depression in their society, will they see God stepping in to right all that is wrong and to bring justification and vindication to his suffering people? And so it was probably a time of great spiritual expectancy. And so the religious authorities had sent folks out to spy on John the Baptist and to see if he is about to inaugurate this new rescue work that has been long anticipated by the people of God. And what we see in this passage is that John the Baptist is rather like a bridge between these Old Testament prophecies and the reality of its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. And for several hundred years, uh, Jesus Christ had been anticipated. Throughout the Old Testament, God was promising to do something new. But the expectations of a prophet like Moses or Elijah or indeed of a a king and a great deliverer, somewhat like David, a Messiah figure, a Christ figure, one anointed by God to restore the fortunes of God's people on earth. This expectation was in the air. But here, in this passage, John the Baptist was, in a sense, possibly the focus of this new thing which the Jews were expecting God to do. But John the Baptist's response was a very instructive example of true humility. He was not going to point the finger at himself and say that I am the one who is going to deliver Israel, but rather point away from himself and to point to Christ. He points away from himself by declaring that uh, all these self-flattering titles, such as a prophet like Moses, or a prophet like Elijah, or a king like David, none of these things would be attached to himself. He himself denies it and says that he is nothing more than a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, taking up those words of Isaiah that we began our service with, of comforting, comforting my people, because a voice crying in the wilderness is preparing a way for the one 
who will restore God's kingdom in the midst of the world. And John recognized himself that he was merely the voice crying out in the wilderness, pointing away from himself, but pointing to the one who would come. He also acknowledged that he merely baptized with water, an outward sign or ritual that pointed to the fact that Israel had taken a wrong turning, that their situation was one of desperate hopelessness because they had turned their back upon God. Their primary need was to repent, to have a a change of mind and a turnaround in their direction. Instead of the wickedness and evil that had characterized their forsaking of God, they were to turn back to God and to earnestly seek his face and seek his mercy and his forgiveness and pardon. So he was merely baptizing with water as a token of a desire to repent of sin and to urge that God might have mercy and look upon them with favor. But in contrast to John the Baptist's sort of self um, or the, the, the desire to um, exalt himself. Rather, rather, what he tries to do is to point to Christ. And he proclaims loudly that there is one in their midst, staying amongst them, one greater than himself, one whose sandals he is un, unfit to tie. He claims to know, uh, not for himself, but for Christ. To exalt Christ was his mission. And to that mission, he steadfastly adheres. And so, this is the first phrase, Christ, his coming. Don't look to me, John the Baptist. I am merely the messenger to urge you to stop in your tracks to examine yourselves, to repent of sin, and to look for rescue to the one whom God is sending to you. So he's prophesying. He's, in a sense, the the last prophet prior to Christ, urging the people to repent and believe in the coming Messiah. Christ, his coming, is the first uh, leg of the stool, if you like, of his message, Christ his coming, and be prepared to have your life rearranged by the one who is coming. The next phrase we notice is his commitment, particularly in verses 29 to 34, to explain that the Christ is here. He has arrived. He has come. John the Baptist proceeds to give the fullest testimony born to Christ uh, uh, of human birth. And his testimony to Jesus is found in in two uh, aspects, if you like. It focuses on two aspects of this anointed one whom God will send to restore his people. It focuses on the person of the Messiah or the Christ. And it also labors the work of Christ as well. 
So here we see him proclaiming who Jesus Christ is, the person. And this is seen particularly in the title that he gives to Christ. He calls upon him as, Behold, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God. And when John takes up this theme of describing the Lamb of God, he's not thinking of the the fluffy creature of our childhoods, the nice woolly lamb that is so cute and so lovable. But rather, he's taking up a uh, well-trodden path throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament of viewing the Lamb of God as a sacrificial victim, an animal that was slain in order to put men right with God. And so it's not the fluffy, cute little creature, but it is the innocent, suffering animal whose blood is shed in order to provide forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with a holy and righteous God. So the image is not of the cute children's storybook, but it's of perhaps the abattoir and the killing and the shedding of the blood of animals as a picture of how God will be brought back into a right relationship with his children. And we notice, perhaps as a quick overview of this theme of the Lamb of God in the Scripture, that there are many key turning points in the Old Testament and even into the New Testament which take up this theme of a Lamb that will be slain in order that men and women may be put right with God. Perhaps one of the earliest we find in Genesis chapter 22. You probably remember the story of Abram's faith being tested. How God spoke to him that he was to take his son Isaac and travel with him up the mountain and there to sacrifice and slay his own son so that in obedience to God's command, God would know that Abraham was willing to sacrifice everything. That's one of the troubling stories of the Old Testament, which has led many to speak of things like child abuse. But actually, if you read the story carefully, you see it is a picture of faith, that Abraham sets out on this terrifying journey, knowing that it's a real struggle to reconcile in his own mind that a loving God should call upon him to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. But actually, he has faith that God will deliver his son in that situation. As they are making their way up the mountain and they leave their servant behind, Abram said, wait here to the servant and we shall return in few days. So Abraham, going up the mountain to sacrifice his son, had some inkling that in some way God would work in that situation. And really, Abram had to wait until the last moment. He took his son, who was carrying the wood for the sacrifice. The altar was set. The wood was laid. 
his son was put onto the altar, and Abram drew the knife to slay his son. And then the Lord intervened. Stay your hand, Abraham. And as Abraham turned round, he saw a ram, uh, a sheep that was caught in the thicket that was to prove to be uh, a substitute for his son. The lamb or the ram caught in the thicket was sacrificed instead of his son Isaac as Abraham passed the test of faith. And we also see that the wonderful experience of delivery from the Israelite slavery in Egypt, the central role played by a Passover lamb on the night of their rescue, their exodus from the land of slavery. The way in which the Pharaoh hardened his heart. There were many plagues that fell upon the land of Egypt, and none of them convinced him that he had to let the Israelites go until the last plague, which was the arrival of the angel of death, who was to pass over the land and kill the firstborn of every household. But there was a way of deliverance and of rescue for his people. Because the Israelites were told to take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb and take the blood and paint it upon the doorpost and the lintel of your house. And as this last terrifying plague uh, moved through Egypt, they would be safe under the blood of the sacrificed Passover lamb. And then we see later on in the prophecy of Isaiah, and where he's speaking of the deliverance of a great Savior. The only Savior would be a lamb that is brought to the slaughter. In Isaiah 53, we have this wonderful picture of God's anointed Savior appearing as a lamb that is ready for the slaughter, that will bear the sin and the wickedness of the people of God and through its death will provide rescue. And then as you come into the New Testament, even to the conclusion of the Bible, you see in the book of Revelation that the central figure in working out the purposes of God to save the world is focused upon that picture of a lamb that was slain to take away the sin of the world. So here is the imagery that John the Baptist is using to identify who this Messiah figure will be, this one who will come to this world to set it free, to put right all that is wrong, to rescue those who are lost, and to bring salvation to those who are perishing. He here was the lamb that would provide a sacrifice that would not merely wash away our sin, but actually would cause a change in the heart of God, would turn aside his anger and his settled opposition to sin, uh, to turn that aside so that God would be forgiving and willing to pardon. And so this lamb stood for a a sacrifice 
a propitiation that turns away the wrath of God at sin and uh, in the light of that can bring salvation to the world. So this is the person that John the Baptist identifies by the river Jordan when he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God. Here is the one who will suffer to save his people. And that brings us to the second focus of his testimony here in this chapter, where he speaks of the work of this Lamb of God. What will this sacrificial lamb achieve? Well, he says there in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what Christ came to do, the effect of being the Lamb of God, acting as this sacrificial lamb who would shed its own blood in order to pave the way for God's forgiveness is to become the world's saviour. And he saves not through some political rule or some philosophical or moral teaching, but by giving himself for sinners like you and me. Jesus Christ came uh, to save sinners. What men could not do for themselves, he accomplished through giving himself as a sacrificial lamb. What neither money nor learning could earn in and of itself, he provides for us through his willing sacrifice. He came to do what is essential for human happiness, to reconcile us, to remove the obstacles and barriers that bar us from being right with a holy and righteous God. He came as a saviour to take away sin. And there is a fullness to the salvation that Jesus Christ offers to us as the Lamb of God. There is a complete salvation seen in him. He did not just make a royal proclamation of pardon and mercy and forgiveness, but his actual death changed us from the inside. It put to death the sin within our being. It took out the heart of stone that was corrupted by sin and replaced it with a new heart of flesh that was amenable to the overtures of mercy that God offers to the repentant sinner. Forgiveness and pardon, but a transformed nature that loves and cherishes God above all else. So a complete salvation, not merely a declaration of pardon, but a transformation of nature and of character, that we are adopted into the family of God, but we actually become children of the living God. It's also a salvation in which he took upon himself our sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he speaks of what Jesus did in dying on the cross, was that he took our sins 
upon his own shoulders, upon himself, and that in that hour he was then uh, bearing the sins of the world in his own body on the tree of crucifixion. So here is a complete salvation that Jesus performs as the Lamb of God. But it's also an almighty uh, salvation for all mankind. It's not just for the Jews only, but for Gentiles as well. Behold, says John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the whole world, Jewish, Gentile. This reconciliation that is accomplished through the death of the Lamb of God. And there's also an aspect of perpetual and unwearied salvation shown by the Lamb of God. Because it doesn't really say he took away the sins of the world. Yes, the centrality of the cross is very important. But actually the process of salvation is an ongoing one that continues until the final day of glorification and perfection which takes place at the end of this world when Christ comes and men and women will see Christ as he is. In a sense, the salvation of Christ, this taking away of the sin of the world, is a daily taking away from everyone who believes in him. It's taking away our sin tomorrow morning when we are going off to work or about our regular affairs. It's a daily purging of our sin, a daily cleansing of our sin, a daily washing of the souls of his people. It is an ongoing salvation that is perpetual and unwearied as he continues to minister on our behalf as the glorified, risen Savior seated at his Father's right hand in heaven. Jesus did not cease to work out our salvation when he died on the cross. That was a foundation stone. But he lives in heaven as a priest to plead continually that his sacrifice uh, continually before God in heaven, pointing to the scars in his hands and feet and side that he gave himself for his people so that they might be pardoned and forgiven. In grace, as well as in providence, Christ still works. So in heaven today, he's seated at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, performing that priestly function of pointing back to Calvary and saying, this is the suffering I endured for my people who are living in London in the 21st century. The sacrifice I made for them and for the future generations and for the past generations. My grace is being poured out on them. Their salvation is being made perfect until that day 
that they are made perfect as he plans in the fullness of time. Such a well-rounded and complete salvation is implied in the name of this great Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But that brings us to another aspect of this passage. Yes, Christ is coming. Christ is here. But can we see him? Finally, the passage before us gives us a solemn reminder of the mournful example of the blindness of unconverted men. These men who came to question John the Baptist and heard him provide this wonderful uh, picture of the real way of salvation through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Many of those who were there to hear this testimony, many who professed to be the leading religious people of the day, who were looking forward to the appearance of the Messiah. They themselves, however, were unwilling to hear and to grasp what John had to say. But John says to them, Among you stands one who you do not know. Verse 26. For these Jews, he was there physically. The Lamb of God, Jesus, was appearing by the river Jordan, but with their spiritual eyes, they could not see the importance of him. Spiritual blindness could only be cured by conversion, by submitting the knee and acknowledging their sinfulness and their need of a savior like the Lamb of God who would give himself to take away their sin and to reconcile them to themselves. And to try and uh, get through to these spiritually delighted people, uh, John the Baptist reminds them of the importance of baptism. He reminds them that his baptism was an outward sign of repentance, of what needed to happen. They needed to come to the water and be washed in the water as a sign of a desire to become new men and women, to be changed, to be different, to be open to spiritual realities. But John could only offer water as an outward sign. What was necessary was the baptism of the Holy Spirit or of the Holy Ghost. And only that would come not through John the Baptist, but through here, the Lamb of God who was to take away the sin of the world. He is the one who is worthy to come and to baptize these people with the Holy Spirit. Verse 33, John says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, the Father in heaven, to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this 
is the Son of God. You not only need the baptism of water, you not only need the outward signs of being religious, of coming to church, of being a a member of the church, of praying, of reading your Bible. What is crucial is that you're also baptized by the Holy Ghost. In other words, to have the Holy Spirit cleansing you from within, washing you from within. And this gift is in the hand of the Lamb of God who was slain to take away the sin of the world. It is in his gift to send forth the Spirit, to transform your heart, to cause you to come under conviction of sin, to acknowledge your need of a Savior, and to point you away from yourself and your own feeble efforts at having a fresh start, and to receive the fresh start from God as the Holy Spirit renews or regenerates or brings alive from the dead our spiritual deadness to make us new men and women in Christ Jesus. So it's not a baptism of water that is important. A baptism which washes away the external dirt, but a baptism of the heart a washing and a cleansing and a transformation of our inner nature, which is in the gift of the Lamb of God who gave himself to take away the sin of the world and to transform the sinner into a child of the living God. Such a Lamb is our only hope in this life and the life to come. It's not the blood of animals slain in the temple, but it's trusting in the only sacrifice of God's Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. Let's come.